Are you new to coaching? Starting out as a coach can be incredibly overwhelming, especially when you aren't given much direction from your administration. That's why I created the New Coaches Playbook. It includes a roadmap to help you start building your coaching foundation and a guide to seven podcast episodes in order that will give you the steps and ideas you need to build relationships, define your role, communicate with your admin, and make a plan to start coaching. Coach, what's your instructional coaching personality type? Have you ever wondered what superpowers make you a really strong coach? and what areas you can strengthen with just a little bit of direction? Well, now you can find out. I created the What's Your Instructional Coaching Personality Type Quiz to help you answer this very question. Just head to buzzingwithmissb.com slash quiz with a capital Q to take the two-minute quiz and get your coaching personality type sent right to your inbox. Even better, you'll get a playlist of podcast episodes handpicked just for you to help you hone your superpowers and strengthen your areas of growth. I'm so excited to share this quiz with you, so don't wait to take it. Go to buzzingwithmissb.com slash quiz with a capital Q and learn so much about your coaching style. You're listening to Buzzing with Miss B, the coaching podcast, where we believe that every teacher deserves a coach, and every coach does too. I'm Chrissy Beltran, an instructional coach, resource creator, and coffee enthusiast. And I'm your host. Stay tuned for practical tips and honest coaching talk that will help you coach with confidence. Hey coaches, and welcome to episode 128 of Buzzing with Miss B, the coaching podcast. This month is all about how coaches can support teachers in the classroom by growing their behavior and management practices. Last week, we talked to Dana Smith about anti-racist behavior management, because this really needs to be the foundation of any behavior practices we try to implement. Today, we're going to add something to our toolkit of behavior practices by talking to my guest, Katie Couples of Katie Couples Teaching. She is my go-to person to learn about classroom community and supporting students through engagement. So I am so excited to welcome her today. So welcome to the podcast, Katie. Hi, I'm so excited to be here. I'm a big fan because as a new instructional coach, I was a big fan of all of your resources. So I'm happy to be here talking with you today. Wow, thank you so much. That makes me really happy to hear that. Um, could you introduce yourself to our listeners and maybe talk a little bit about who you are, how you ended up here and what kind of work you focus on? Yeah, absolutely. So my name is Katie and I am a second grade teacher turned instructional specialist in Washington state. In my most recent role, I supported teachers kindergarten through fifth grade as an instructional coach in all subject areas, but I also coordinated our ELL program and assisted with academic and behavior support. So a lot of hats, which I'm sure a lot of your listeners can relate to in the coaching world. Um, but then I went on extended maternity leave back in 2021, and I miss being connected to the world of education. So I started sharing resources and trainings online to support elementary teachers with building classroom community, which is really my passion. So sharing all ideas about relationships, social emotional learning, positive behavior supports, and yeah, that's what I'm doing now. I love it. I followed you online for a while and you've been sharing some really great content, especially about classroom communities. Mm -hmm. So could you talk about what a classroom community is? Yeah, absolutely. I feel like classroom community can kind of turn into a buzzword, you know, yeah. so my- Everyone can. Yeah. <laughs> 
My working definition of community is that it's the learning environment that teachers cultivate alongside their students and their families to promote a sense of belonging and safety and joy in everyday teaching and learning. So, I mean, it's more than just a morning meeting. It's more than just playing games with your students and doing fun activities. It's more than just relationships with your kids too. It's the way that you make sure all of your students feel valued and trusted and successful and confident. I mean, it's really, it's the foundation of everything in your classroom. It's where the social emotional learning work, the supporting student behavior work and your relationship building collide. And I mean, speaking of relationships, I believe teachers need to continually foster what I call the four key relationships in their classroom. So that is a teacher to student relationship, but also teacher to family, student to student and student to self. And when we have all four of those, that's really when the magic happens. Wow, that's so interesting. Would you talk a little bit more about that? Like, how do we go about really being thoughtful about how we're developing each of these relationships? Yeah, I mean, it's a huge, complex job. And I think that mm -hmm. sometimes you hear that and you're like, that's so much work, but it can be so easily integrated into what you're doing. And we're going to, I know, get to talk about some of those different strategies today together. Um, but I think remembering that we want to be proactive with building these relationships, you know, some of it happens organically in your classroom and the way you communicate with your kids, but also it's that social emotional learning work too. So having the rituals in your classroom routines, things like your morning meeting or just checking in with your kids every morning and helping them to um, support each other in their groups and their partnerships, and then making that intentional time to help them develop skills beyond the academics. I think, I mean, we think about how we need to be teaching the academics, but there's so many other things that we need to teach in our classrooms too, because those things help support the academics. And I think sometimes I think about classroom community kind of like an iceberg, like we've all walked past a classroom or observed in one where students are really engaged and they're supportive of each other and everyone seems happy to be there and students are behaving, but it doesn't really seem like the teacher is doing much to make it happen and kids are learning like they're making academic progress. I think that like you know that classroom is successful because the teacher intentionally created that community piece there's all that hidden stuff that isn't easy to see but it's there you know there's the ownership of the students there's the relationships there's the family engagement there's trust that's a huge one. There's a social emotional instruction, there's self-confidence, there's growth mindset. It's all that non-academic stuff that really makes the community strong. You know, now that I am a parent, I think about, I mean, you just automatically make connections to your own existence. Totally. <laughs> and so I think about, okay, developing relationships with my kids. You know, I each have, I have a strong relationship with each of my children. One of them is only 16 months old. Well, she'll be a little older by the time this comes out. <laughs> and then the other one is four years old. And uh, thinking about what I've been working on lately is developing their relationship with each other, because obviously I have a good relationship with each one, but working on, you know, the four-year-old is playing, the 16-month-old wants to play. And of course, the way they play is very different than the way a four-year-old plays. And so, you know, my older daughter is like, she's trying to do she's not trying to do anything she doesn't even know that's a thing you can do mm -hmm. she's just trying to explore and that's what they do and so like ways to develop that student to student relationship I think that's so interesting and we talk a lot about like building teams and getting to know each other at the beginning of the year but how do we sustain that because yeah. that you know it's there's such a big push for it the first couple of weeks and then I feel like you get just so inundated with curriculum that sometimes you kind of let go of all of that stuff 
Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of it goes back to our social emotional learning work, which again, doesn't necessarily need to be something separate that you're doing, but it's Mm -hmm. woven into how you are modeling things for your kids. It's woven into your instruction. Literacy is a great place for this because, you know, read alouds can model so much of this for kids, but we think about skills like being able to identify emotions in yourself and others, like being able to see, oh, that person feels this way. This is how I should react. Um, Being able to self-regulate, being able to communicate effectively, advocate for themselves and others, right? All of those things come with practice. And, you know, I like the the quote, like empathy isn't taught, it's caught, right? So it's all these Mm -hmm. things that we are modeling for our kids and we're giving opportunities for them to practice with role-playing, um, with those classroom discussions, but also with like the norms that we're setting in our classroom. So having like a classroom agreement so that we're really making explicit what it looks like for us to be a community and for us to support each other, because Mm -hmm. you're right. I mean, you don't necessarily know, and we we expect kids to come in like, oh, they're, you know, I'm an old second grade teacher. So like they've been in school, they know this, but they don't know. They don't really know. (laughs) And also they they don't know how to do it in your classroom, right? You still have that opportunity and that job to build that culture that's specific to your room with your students. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I like thinking about it that way. School is a different culture from home, completely Mm -hmm. different. And then each classroom is different from each other. My older, my older daughter started pre-K this year. And some of the things that she comes home and says are just, they're just so sweet because I know where she's coming from with it, having been in school for so long. And, uh, and then also some of them, I'm like, they probably could have not done that (laughs) (laughs) like in the cafeteria there after they're done eating lunch they're they have to lay their heads down Mm -hmm. and that's like not my favorite thing and it's not her favorite thing so she calls it that dumb cafeteria she just doesn't (laughs) like totally and and that's the kind of the culture that they're building in the cafeteria by that Mm -hmm. that little rule I mean I know it has a purpose but I know there are other ways to accomplish that purpose yeah. So that's like a survival mode that they're in with putting their heads down. And I said, mm-hmm. well, just save a bite and eat it right before you're done, right before right. lunch is over. Like, <laughs> try to make the best of it. I, yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, it's interesting that that culture, it does, it seeps into the kids and they feel it, you know, and the, and she's also come home making some comments about, oh, some of the boys in my class, they have, they're making a lot of mistakes and they, and so she's hearing this. Mm-hmm. she's hearing this from somebody and I'm, at least she was saying they were making mistakes and not that they were being bad I do appreciate that but yeah. they you know she's hearing commentary and so mm-hmm. you know it's something to think about how they internalize everything that we say Absolutely. and it's not directed at her nobody is telling her hey you need to notice how these kids are making mistakes it's, but somebody is commenting on on the mistakes in that way Yeah. And I think that's another big way to think about the student to student relationship is like you said, students are watching us interact with their peers. So the way that we treat mistakes or behaviors or whatever, like they're noticing that they're internalizing it and they are replicating it in whatever way that they think is like how this makes sense. Mm -hmm. And that can make a huge impact on students relationships, relationships with each other, but also like their own sense of self-worth and all those things. Yes. Yeah. I think about students that I had in the past years ago, I mean, you know, I've been in the field for a long time and you learn a lot and you change, but earlier in my career, there were certain kids in my classroom that were demonstrating some significant behaviors. And I'm sure that the way that I responded to it reinforced the idea with other, reinforced that with other kids Mm -hmm. that they were, those children tend to have fewer friends already because Mm -hmm. they do struggle to, to maintain those relationships, but how much of it is the way that we're reacting 
mm-hmm. to those behaviors, that's making it harder for them to maintain relationships too. I was yeah. thinking about that. So yeah, absolutely. Point. So one thing, and I'm kind of hinting at this, one thing I'm curious about is how teacher personality really impacts the community they build in their classroom. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm thinking about this because you shared a post a while ago about creating a peaceful classroom community. And that really stuck with me because I am not a peaceful person. <laughs> that is not my life. Um, I'm just not, I'm not peaceful. That's not a word anyone would, anyone would ever use to describe me or in the environments. I'm excited. I, you know, I, I, um, am like a go-getter, I guess I'm, I'm, you know, I just, I love to learn and I do, I tend to be more excited than peaceful mm-hmm. and my students were excited as well. At least that was one thing I know I gave them. They were excited to learn new stuff. And so I wonder what does that look like in the classroom with different per- teacher personality and how that impacts the community that we build? Yeah. Yeah. I love this question. I definitely think that personality impacts the community you build. And I absolutely think teachers should bring their authentic selves to their classrooms, right? It's so important for us to be who we really are in front of our students, because it also empowers them to be who they really are. Mm -hmm. But we also need to do it in a way that aligns with our values, our goals in the classroom, and like what's best for our students. Like, for example, if you know you can be stubborn, like I know I can be stubborn or (laughs) impatient, or you tend to micromanage situations, all of those things, guilty of all of those. Are you, hold on now, are you talking about me or yourself? I'm talking about you. I'm talking about, you know, maybe me. So you want to be aware of those things, right? And how they impact your classroom culture and how they impact your Mm -hmm. students. Then you can intentionally choose how you respond to situations in a way that helps you build the classroom culture and environment and feel that you want for you and your students. Mm -hmm. I think as far as like peaceful personalities goes, I don't think you need to be like all calm and Zen hundred percent of the time to achieve (laughs) peace. And like, I don't think your classroom should necessarily be like that either. I think a high energy and fun classroom can still be a peaceful one. I guess I think more of peace, like a sense of ease and comfort in the classroom for students and for teachers, right? There's safety, reduced anxiety, there's Mm -hmm. trust. Students know what's expected of them. They know what they need to do to be successful. And that's really what a peaceful classroom is to me. Like, it's not going to be a classroom without energy. It's not even going to be a classroom without conflict, right? Conflict Mm -hmm. is a normal part of relationships, working together. It's a part of all of our classrooms, but it's more about how, like giving students the tools and you the tools to be able to deal with those things when they come up so that everybody leaves the day feeling like this was a good day, you know, overall, Mm -hmm. and that that happens more often than not. And I think that's really what peaceful, peaceful means to me in the classroom. Mm -hmm. I like that. And I like that you're talking about making sure everybody has the tools because it's about kids having tools and about teachers having tools. Mm -hmm. This, you know, this podcast is most of the people who listen are instructional coaches and coaches are generally not they're, they're often taught a lot of practices that are instructional, and then they're taught how to go support teachers in those areas, but they're often not really supported in helping teachers grow their behavior practices. Mm-hmm. So teachers who don't have tools are looking at coaches who may or may not have tools. Mm-hmm. And we're like, okay, let's figure this out. What can we do? And it's such a personal thing, you know, management, because I feel like who you are as a person and the way you see kids and the way you see children and the way, like how they grow, like development and the way you see learning and the world. I feel all of that comes out in your management and yeah. it's such a challenge to support teachers in making changes in those areas totally. because they're so personal. Yeah. And I think some of that goes back to like school-wide policies and school-wide professional development. Like the coach can yeah. help with that, but there's only so much that you can do to shift mindsets. If there's not a collective effort around that, like that's coming from admin too. Mm-hmm. 
because it yeah. is, it's, it's, there's so, it's such a complex, <laughs> like supporting behavior is so complex. And I think so many strategies and practices we use as teachers are just so embedded deeply into, um, what's what I'm looking for, just like perspectives that we don't even know that we hold necessarily, um, and just habits that we've built. And it takes time to shift away from those. And it's not necessarily like one day everything's going to be totally different in your classroom. It's a journey that might take years in your classroom. That's true. Same as, as being a parent. <laughs> right. Exactly. A lot You're of uncovering all these, like, why do I react that way? Why right. do I think that's a problem? Why am I getting, so, why am I like saying, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go. Who did that right. help? Like, why did right. I do that? <laughs> exactly. I, I know I'm a mom of a two and a half year old, so I get it. <laughs> So you mentioned one of the relationships that we have to cultivate is that that um, teacher parent relationship or teacher guardian teacher adults grown up. So communicating obviously with families is going to be an important component. How can teachers really approach those family relationships in a productive way because this is something that used to stress me out as a teacher. Yeah, no. It's huge and it, it can be stressful. So, I mean, I could talk about this for days. So I think it comes down to like four things and hopefully that's not too many. I'll be brief. Um, first, I think just the, the absolute basics, we need to communicate with families in their preferred language and we need to do, we need to know and use their preferred names and pronounce them correctly. Like that's just the baseline for setting up a successful relationship with families. And that can, I mean, it's simple, but it's not necessarily easy. Like to think about interpretation and stuff, but it's important to try to make that happen. And then second, I think there are some mindset shifts. I think that teachers need to make sure they really truly believe in the importance of the family relationships for both themselves and for students. I mean, research has shown again and again and again how beneficial positive family relationships are to student academic success. So it's vital that we as the teachers make that a priority as well as like the whole school. But it can also help us as educators to better reach and teach our students. So, I mean, it's important that we approach our families with the goal of a mutually beneficial partnership. So I think that's a big mindset shift there because sometimes it's like, just feels like another thing on our plate, you know? But we also need to practice, I think, curiosity instead of judgment and empathy instead of frustration when we approach these conversations and these relationships, because there's a lot of times that we are trying to build a relationship or trying to communicate and it isn't going as planned. And there are so many reasons that that could be the case, whether it's just like general life stuff or the family's past experience with school with their own kid or as when they were a kid, you know? So keeping that compassion and curiosity at the forefront will, I think, help us be more successful. But as far as like the actual communication goes, I think it's important that we really plan consistent and proactive communication. So thinking about differentiation too with our families, like let's send home a classroom newsletter to keep our families informed, but also have methods for one-on-one -on -one contact, whether it's via an app or email or phone and to really know how our families like to be communicated with, how often, and then adjust what we are doing to meet their needs too. Um, and I'm a big proponent of positive communication too. So just helping teachers make a realistic plan for connecting with families, just to share something positive is so important. That could mm -hmm. be a phone call, email, or it could be just a note in the backpack, right? But we need the positive to outweigh the negative for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, and lastly, I think this is number four, um, every partnership requires that two-way feedback mechanism, right? Teachers definitely need to be asking for and using family input throughout the year. So back to school time is really important for this, but asking 
throughout the year, like how are things going? How does your student feel at school? Like what's working for you? What's not working for you? What could I do better? How can I be the best teacher I can be for your student and for you? Which can be scary, but at the same time, like we don't wanna be wasting our time with strategies and practices that aren't actually helping our kids and, and their families. So I think creating those opportunities is really important. Yeah, I remember one year I sent home as part of my you know, back to school letter, introducing myself in the classroom and things like that. I sent home a little form and it was just asking some very basic things to the parent. And one of them was, what is it, what goal do you have for your child this year? What do you want them to yeah. get out of fourth grade or third grade? Mm-hmm. And I was surprised how different the answers were, yeah. how, you know, things that had not been something that I really was that concerned about as a teacher, because I thought, oh, that'll happen. They'll, that'll be fine. That was a major concern for the parent or, you know, some, some of them who were very, very worried about testing when I was like, your kid's doing, what is it that you're worried about? Everything's going to be okay. So it was very interesting to see that and to know, you know, okay, this is what they're coming with when they come into a parent conference or whenever they respond to a note that I send home, this is what they're, they're worried about. This is what they're thinking about what they want to know about. Yeah, I love adding that question to my back to school surveys too. And I think that just asking families those questions and then remembering and using that information, it just goes so far in building that trust to show that like you, we value your input. We know that you know your child and we want to work with you to make this the best year for your child yet. So I think when we ask questions, that's great, but remembering and using the information is even more important and responding. That's a very good point. I, what are some of the things that you like to do to communicate regularly? You mentioned a newsletter. Like I know you used to do like a Tuesday folder. Every Tuesday it would go home with a yeah. little note about the child's behavior, just a general like in progress and the parent would sign it. Um, you know, smaller kids tend to have like a daily calendar mm-hmm. where, you know, they get a little note. I know that my daughter in pre-K brings home a little folder um, that says which things she did well on. There's like a, a number code. It's like number one represents um, helping others and two is following directions and three and then she gets like a little list in her little square for the day on the calendar of all the things that she did well that day and so she's like what did I do well today like she's very <laughs> interested in that and so far the only one that hasn't come home yet is helping others which based on her personality she's very independent she's like all right I'm done what, what do we do now so that makes a lot of sense to me yeah, <laughs> totally but, but uh, what are some of the things that you like to do? Oh, also Seesaw is a great app or Mind mm-hmm. is an app that people use really effectively. I think some people do Class Dojo for the communication components. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think having whatever app you wanna use that can show student work and what their progress is on things, mm-hmm. um, like that can be a great tool. And then having an easy way for families to be able to connect with you and like have, you know, having families know how to connect with you within whatever's comfortable for you is important. But then being able to just send off a quick text or email or whatever to just share an update or make that phone call to say like really briefly, I need you to know that today your child did this and it was amazing. And that's all, that's all I wanted to share with you. Goodbye. And just trying to keep those phone calls brief too. So I think another one is just depending on your school and how pick up and drop off go, but just going out to, um, to talk to families and be present and just, how are you today? What's new? Just making that relationship, something that isn't always so formal and always reactive to something that's happening. Um, and then of course, just like knowing what, you know, your, your own protocols are and what your school protocols are for making sure that you're communicating. If there are issues, like making sure you're sharing about those early on versus like, boom, something's a big problem. We need to fix this right now, making sure that that, um, 
they're always in the know with those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I think culturally that can be such a challenge because some, some homes, some parents are like, um, well, you're the, you're the teacher, you handle it. Mm-hmm. Right. But you still have to keep them informed. Yeah. And then, but so everybody has kind of a different idea of how, of what that relationship looks like with yeah. the school and what they're comfortable with. Mm-hmm. And I know my husband's parents um, immigrated here whenever they were in their thirties, right before they had their kids and his, he, they were like, well, go to school, do what your teacher says. And that was the extent of their participation. They didn't speak yeah. the language. Um, they didn't speak English. And at the time there were not as, I mean, now where I live, it's like 80% bilingual, but at the time people in those positions did not often speak Spanish. Right. And so they, didn't have a lot of contact with the school. They would get, you know, a note home from the teacher. They couldn't necessarily read it. Yeah. Um, and they'd be like, well, what does it say? What did you do? And mm-hmm. that was what they could, that was what they had. Like that was their experience, you know? Yeah. And they were, they just could not, they were like, you can go to school. I couldn't go to school, go to school, just go, just do what they tell you to do. And so <laughs> if they were struggling academically, that was something that was kind of outside of their, mm-hmm. their um, experience. So yeah. they didn't understand how to support him. I mean, that was just not in their, their life experience at all. So that's a challenge. Sometimes I feel like we're, we're parents who are trying to support their child in the way that they know how to support them. Mm-hmm. That is the, their experience. But the child, like my husband did need more. He needed something yeah. different. So that, that bridge was not built to the parent from the school. There was no effort really made. Yeah. And I think that goes like, sometimes that's beyond the teacher's capacity to build yeah. that, right. That, um, how to, the, I'm trying to think about the right word, but like the school as a system, the district, as well as the school really need to be creating these opportunities to be educating families mm-hmm. in how to be advocates for their child and how to be involved. And of course, that doesn't mean it's going to look the same way for everybody, but you're right. You don't know what you don't know. And we know again, from the research that when families are having positive connections with school, when they are engaged in the learning, um, kids have better outcomes, right. For their entire academic careers. So I think, again, sometimes that's, we can do a lot as teachers, but we can't do it all. So I think it's going back to, I mean, coaches listening, sometimes being a part of that family engagement committee, or just asking the questions about how are we really supporting our families as a system, because it can't all fall on the teachers. Exactly. Yes. Like that, in that situation, um, a translator should have been provided to school, totally not bilingual. Mm-hmm. And at the time, I don't know that that was the case. Um, now it's very easy for anybody in our district to walk down the hallway and grab their bilingual teaching partner, you know, <laughs> but it, it was not the case yeah. at the time. So they did, they should have provided translators, at least for parent night, at least for the times whenever they were inviting parents in, because yeah. what is the benefit of going to school and listening to your child's teacher tell you things that you do not understand? Right. It's, now we do make sure that materials that are sent home are sent home in in those two languages, at least, but we have students that speak other languages and we do not translate every material yeah. into multiple languages. We just do the two. Mm-hmm. That, that alone is a challenge. I, I know I had a student one year from um, Hong Kong and her, his parents spoke Mandarin and the, her dad spoke a little bit of English. And so he would come and communicate and translate for the, for the mom. Mm-hmm. But it was absolutely a challenge because I didn't have any resources as a teacher to communicate yeah. with them effectively. And those, like you're saying, those are school system things and coaches can only be advocates in that, in that position sometimes. Absolutely. And it's hard to watch. It's hard to watch when it's like, there aren't the right systems in place and there's not much else you can do, but I think doing everything we can to, like you said, provide that interpretation and supporting the student and being that middle person. I mean, it's not ideal, but like we can help them with that too. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes there's, there are resources out there that we just, do you know of any resources, like really good programs or support for building a positive relationship with parents or families? Have you seen anything out there that's really, that you think, wow, that's really great. If my school would have, you know, used this, I might've gone a long way. I wish I had something off the top of my head, but I can't think of anything in particular. Yeah, I can't either. So. <laughs> I know. Um, which is, I mean, I don't know that that's necessarily a program, but you know, if there's anything out there about, I, I know that we had um, uh, a, something called Escuelita, which was like a little, it was like the uh, tutoring program after school and parents could come and, you know, they would sometimes sit in with their kids. But again, that requires parents who are not at work to be able to do that. You know, mm-hmm. so I don't, I'm just wondering if there's any, if you think of anything, feel free to interject it. Yeah. At any point. yeah. I think another good resource for that is your counselor. If you have a school social worker, a lot of times they know of those kinds of um, programs or supports that are outside of the academic stuff too. Yes, absolutely. And that's going to differ due to like location. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. So w- earlier we talked a little bit about my, um, my 16 month old who is normal and my four year old who thinks my 16 month old is a terror. So, <laughs> so they have, you know, some problem solving challenges. So what are some ways that teachers can really proactively teach students problem solving strategies? And I know I've seen you share about this on Instagram yeah. as well. It's a huge, a huge hurdle for a lot of classrooms. Yeah, I'm a big, I'm really passionate about this. So I think the biggest things are teaching students how like first we can help them identify the size of a problem. And I think it's important when we do this, we remember that um, this isn't going to be uniform for all kids and everybody experiences problems and um, emotions differently. But in general, we can help them to understand when a problem is smaller, they can try to solve that problem on their own. And then like, if that's a bigger problem, when they can get teacher help and when it's an emergency and when they need to get teacher help right away. So I think, I think one thing I hear teachers say a lot is like, they're always coming to me to get like these small problems solved. So let's first help them to distinguish between those different groups, like a small, medium, and big problem. Um, And we need to have really clear systems in place for how to solve those problems on their own, whether if it's it's something that is um, like an individual problem, like, you know, I don't have a pencil or I can't find my math book or whatever, like we need to have um, routines and procedures in place for them to be able to solve those problems on their own. But sometimes the problems are with their peers too. So like, so-and-so is humming and I can't focus, that's, you know, let's try to solve that on your own first, but we have to teach them how do you do that? So do you, you know, put on, do you have like noise canceling headphones in your classroom or do they move to a different spot? Like what are the different ways that they could solve that on their own? And then always making sure the kids know that you are there because I'm never a proponent of like, it's a small problem, you do it on your own. Like maybe they tried, but they failed or maybe they try, but they're whatever, whatever reason they are in a heightened emotional state that day. And they just can't do it on their own. We never want kids to feel like they're out there struggling with problems on their own, but, um, I think we can nudge them towards independence with that framework. Um, but then we also need to have a really clear problem solving process too, like with a classmate. So thinking about how we teach students to have a meaningful problem solving conversation, how we teach them to compromise and giving lots of practice, I think with role play and classroom discussion is like where that really comes to life. So giving a, like a sample problem, like I said, um, or maybe it's something like I really wanted to read this book and they wanted to read it too, or a toy or whatever it is, a game. And we both wanted it. Like, what do we do? And then just having a discussion with your class about what could they do to solve that problem? And let's get some kids up here to act it out and see if we can figure out a way to resolve that conflict. 
I think that can be really powerful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love the role play strategy. It is so helpful, and it it kind of it gives them the practice. It sort of kicks in whenever that that problem actually arises. Totally, you practice it in a moment of low stress, mm-hmm. and if you practice in a fun way, it's more likely to like they're, they're to they're more likely to remember they have a toolbox whenever totally. the problem comes up if they if they've had opportunity to practice. Yeah, and I think another easy way to do this too is with our read-alouds. Like if we see characters having conflict, let's dissect that conflict. Let's talk about how we know there was a conflict. Let's talk about how they're feeling. Let's talk about how they responded. Was it a good way to respond? Was it a productive way to respond? Was it, um, what could they do differently, right? Let's talk about and really dig into that problem with characters because again, it's removed, but we're, we're thinking through it, which I think can be really powerful. Yeah. I think pictures might be a fun way to do that too. If you totally. have a picture of people involved in a conflict and you can talk about what do you notice, how do you know, mm-hmm. you know, how they're feeling and then what are some possible things that you could do um, to move on and to resolve it. That would be cool too. Like yeah. a little, I think sometimes investing five, 10 minutes a day, mm-hmm. in something, in, you know, having some purpose for, for that time where you're working on a social skill or mm-hmm. problem solving strategies or, I mean, just any of those things that we know kids are lacking that we need them to learn in order to be able to function in the school, right. you know, habit, like ecosystem, mm-hmm. um, that, that is such time well spent, even though you can feel like, okay, I don't have five, 10 minutes, but you're going to spend five or 10 minutes redirecting. Right. <laughs> putting out fires if you exactly. don't do it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And I think that a lot of that goes into that, like we talked about earlier, the social emotional work. It's not, um, it's really a year long mm-hmm. process for kids. It's integrated. It's not like you teach them how to do it and they're going to be able to do it. Even if you're really explicit, because there's so many social emotional skills that go into problem solving. Like we talked about the self-regulation, the emo- identifying emotions in yourself and others, like communication, those things, they're not, you don't wake up one day and you can do all of those things. So it's just continually practicing all of those kind of soft skills to help with the, with that problem solving is going to be key. Mm -hmm. So how can teachers plan for engagement so that they minimize student misbehaviors because students are actively like engaged with their brains and with their bodies and, and learning? Yeah, planning and engaging instruction is huge. And when it comes to preventing misbehavior, knowing a couple of like strategies in your back pocket can just really prevent those, which is great. But I think that um, we can also think about transition times and other unstructured or in-between times as um, times where we want to have some engagement strategies too. So I think as far as lessons, thinking about how we can include movement, if kids are sitting on the carpet or sitting at their desks for a long time, it's, you know, they're going to get um, disengaged. And we also have to remember that like kids have a short attention span, right? So it's normally, what is it? I think it's like double their age is how many minutes you probably get with them that they're going to be able to focus. Um, so just being aware of how long it's been that you've been teaching or that they've been sitting to break it up with movement or just stop the lesson. Um, we want to give lots of chances to talk to partners or groups and try to connect the learning to um, students' interests. I think that's a big one. Just pop, if you're doing word problems, pop a student's name in the word problem. Or now you've got Jose with his Pokemon cards, giving some to Danielle. Like you've got two kids in the classroom. They're interested in Pokemon cards. They're going to be more engaged. Um, and then offering choice, I think is a huge one too. It's trying to build that ownership so students know that it's not just a sit and get. Um, as far as transitions or that in-between time, I think about trying to use music or chants, um, 
giving a specific job or task, like when we would come to um, the math lesson, for example, there could be a math problem on the board so that while everyone's getting set up, kids know that they can try to start solving that math problem right away versus just sitting and inevitably talking to <laughs> their neighbor or engaging in some other off-task behavior. Um, or like during writing, I would have their kid, have the kids bring their writing to the lesson and then they would um, like reread their writing and remember what their goals were, where they left off the day before. Um, you can also give like a specific prompt where kids are going to be reflecting either on their own or writing or drawing or by talking about that with a partner. So I think it's about being purposeful with that time so that it's not because they will fill it <laughs> with yeah. other activities if you don't give them something to do. Um, that's going to be helpful and productive. It doesn't have to be something new and novel every day, right? Like every day, sit down and do a math problem. Yeah. Yeah. I like that a lot. I think that's so important. And we do, especially um, new teachers sometimes don't think about how am I going to get kids from this to that in a perfect, whenever, while they're still engaged, how am I going to continue the engagement from one thing to another? Um, but we see it in, in veteran classrooms as well, where they just kind of expect kids to be mature mm -hmm. and and they're not, they're little. I mean, yeah. we're all going to do it. If I'm a, giving a workshop and oh, totally. I don't have something for teachers to do from one activity to the next, they're going to get up. They're going to go find some candy. They're going to start chatting. I mean, that's just what it's hum we are human and they are yeah. human. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I used to use, you reminded me, I, I love using song and chant in the classroom and I do it with my kids now too, which yeah. I think others might think is a little <laughs> nutty, but that's, I don't know how else to get through the day. Right. And so we used one of my favorite songs ever that I wrote, because I would write songs to start a subject. So mm -hmm. the idea is that, you know, we say, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're moving to writing. By the time the song ends, you need to have this, this, and this on your desk. And then we'd start singing the song. So then by the that's time cool. it was over, they were ready. And so my favorite one of all time was I wrote a song about um, writing. And this is when I used writer's workshop. It was a modified writer's workshop. Mm -hmm. a writer's workshop model. And I wrote it to the tune of um, SpongeBob SquarePants, the <laughs> theme song. And I mean, there are like grown adults now who can still sing this song out there in the world. <laughs> I love it. It was so much fun because instead of SpongeBob SquarePants, we go writer's workshop. And uh, <laughs> and it, they do, they stick to you and they, they give you, you know what you're supposed to do. And it just helps build that routine. And I think it adds joy. Mm -hmm. um, totally. Well, and sometimes yeah. we can get in a rut, but there are ways to add joy, even if what you have to do is not as exciting as you would. Right. Like. Coming to the carpet. I used to sing, it reminded me when you're saying that, um, I was saying a really great rendition of we're coming to the carpet to the tune of we're going to the chapel. Is that what it is? <laughs> we're coming to the carpet and we're in like, just it, it goes back to personality, right? You're bringing in who you yeah. really are. You're having fun. Your kids see that you're having fun and it just, it makes the day better for everybody. And you're also, like you said, preventing behavior problems. Yes. Yes. And so that's what I want to talk about next because, well, that's kind of the opposite of what I want to talk about. next. <laughs> so much of this is about being proactive and supporting student behavior and, and really preventing behavior issues. Yeah. But how do teachers respond to significant misbehaviors in a way that's constructive and it doesn't damage your relationship with their students or like we talked about earlier, doesn't damage students' relationships with each other. Uh, exactly. I a lot about that, but that's a big part of it. Yeah, yeah, we definitely need to keep relationships in the forefront when we're responding to misbehavior. And I think, like you said, the student to student relationship is important too, as well as that student to self relationship. Because, like we said, students are watching how we respond to other students, or responding to their behaviors, they're internalizing what they see. And so that can have a big impact on those peer relationships. But similarly, we don't want to damage students' self confidence or their 
feelings of worth with the way that we respond to their behavior too. We want to communicate continual care while also holding those high expectations and that boundary, but we need to be thinking about how we can develop student self-control and their self-regulation skills. Mm -hmm. um, I love responsive classroom for all of this stuff. I think um, when it comes to responding to the behavior in the moment, we first want to try things like nonverbal reminders or pre-established cues or even a quick verbal reminder to, to help the student get back on track if we can catch the behavior early on. I love nonverbal or like a hand signal for this. We would have one for like sitting or waiting or, you know, even as something about like, remember to raise your hand, um, different things to um, help students to get back on track. But if we need to because it's you know that didn't work or because it's already escalating we can add in proximity and a one-on-one -on -one conversation i think it's important that we try as much as possible to have conversations in private um so that we are maintaining that dignity of the student um of course that's not always going to happen like you can be talking to a student quietly and other kids can hear but maybe not shouting across the classroom <laughs> what you're um what you want the student to do mm -hmm. um and then as we're doing that, we're realizing too that like if a student is in an elevated emotional state, it's not the right time to try to correct necessarily or try to teach. We might want to make sure we have those um, other things in place in your classroom, like a calm corner, like what do students do when they are, you know, angry or just too, um, like I said, emotionally elevated to really deal with that. But um, I think a logical consequence is the next step for that too. So thinking about how we want to focus on repairing the damage or harm that was done with that behavior while building some social emotional learning skills and giving like a related and realistic consequence to the misbehavior. But we talked about this earlier, it's so complex. <laughs> behavior management is so complex, but it's important to think about those relationships and how you are responding. And I think like you were saying a moment ago, when we're thinking about adult learning, thinking about how we want, like if you were caught talking in a, in a PD or something, mm -hmm. how would you want the person leading that PD to respond to you? And we can kind of lead with that as well and how we're responding to students. I was frequently caught talking at a PD. Yeah, <laughs> very talkative. Yes, and you know, even sometimes it's, it's on topic, but it's not yeah. at the right time. So exactly. <laughs> so yeah, that's a good point is, is thinking about how we, want to be treated with respect and how we don't want to be shamed and neither exactly. do children want to be shamed. Yeah. And thinking about, you know, that difference between like you did something bad versus you are bad. We want to really make sure that we are always maintaining that sense of self-worth, that dignity, that confidence, um, and normalizing that we all make mistakes and that we can fix mistakes when they happen and we can repair. Uh-huh. Yeah. So this episode is coming out once the school year is well underway. It is, it is like, October, November, actually. And so it's, you know, things have already happened. So how can teachers make adjustments to their classroom at this point um, mm -hmm. to make the, to make it work better and support their learners right now, whenever they've already spent several months kind of getting to this point? Yeah. Yeah. It's so important to be continually reflecting on how things are working in our classrooms and make changes as needed. I think first teachers can reflect on how they think things are going and how they are feeling at the end of the day and during the day. Like, do they feel energized or do they feel drained? Do they feel overwhelmed? And starting there is a good place um, as well as like, are there any sticky spots or times that feel particularly challenging and maybe to focus on those. Mm -hmm. But then we also want to get our students input, like doing a survey um, or even just having a class discussion, depending on your comfort level. This can be formal or informal, 
to find out how students are feeling in the classroom, like what is working for them. And this can work even with your youngest kids. They can do smiley face ratings on things like how they feel in the classroom, like how much, um, you know, this is probably the right way you want to word it, but like, do you feel like the teacher likes you? Or do you feel like, you know, do you feel like you have a good relationship with the teacher? Like that kind of thing, because that can help you to uncover some things that maybe you might've missed otherwise. Um, do they feel successful? Do they feel like they're meeting the expectations? Do they like coming to school? Um, and with that data in hand, you can kind of, well, I mean, I always recommend getting support from a coach <laughs> to come in and observe and support um, in the planning process. But some other things that teachers could try, um, well, first think if there are any students that you're having trouble connecting with and try the two by 10 strategy, which is um, two minutes a day for 10 days, you connect with that one student or you can pick a handful, but I wouldn't choose too many. And then um, you're having a conversation with that student about nothing academic, nothing behavior related. It's just based on their, you know, their interests. They can lead the conversation. You can come with a silly or interesting get to know you question to that conversation, but an opportunity for you to just connect with them. And that can really help to build the relationship between you and that student that you might be having a hard time connecting with. Um, and if you aren't already, try adding in more social emotional learning opportunities, doing a daily mood check-in um, to find out how kids are feeling throughout the day, at least in the morning so that you can think about how you can better support students as they're walking in to class in the morning because they're bringing in things with them, right? From home, whether they didn't sleep well or they're hungry or they had an argument with their sibling on the way or the bus, whatever, just knowing how kids are feeling is gonna make a big difference. Um, if it's November, you're definitely gonna be thinking about um, reflecting on or revisiting routines and procedures. Like are things working well in your classroom or do we need to change things or tweak things or reteach things? Cause I think we get so caught in like, I did that at back to school, but things maybe, stop working or maybe they never really worked or maybe they just need to be retaught. So I think reflecting on those is important. And then yeah. we've talked a couple of times about peer relationships. So just really building in opportunities to build those in your classroom. And a simple way to do that, I think, is with students giving each other shout outs and recognizing each other in the classroom. So that could be at the end of the day or it can be at the end of each lesson or period where you pick a popsicle stick or you go in, in some sort of class order where everyone gets to give a compliment publicly to a classmate, which of course there's some parameters. You can't just choose a friend or something. They have to have a reason, but then there can be a class cheer or some, um, you know, we always said two snaps on two and then we do one, two snaps, um, applause, whatever. But I think building in those opportunities for peers to recognize each other is huge for that classroom culture piece too. Yeah, that's great. I, you know, I read recently, I was reading the whole brain child and mm -hmm. One of the things, the one thing that stuck in my head the most, probably because my children's relationship with each other is so important to me and I want them to have the opportunity to have a close relationship as they get older, is that the best predictor of having a strong relationship in the future is how much fun they had when they were little mm. together. And so I was thinking about that in terms of a classroom. And if we can have kids have fun together, yeah. they are more likely to want to be with each other and enjoy that, you know, absolutely have way fewer problems. So mm -hmm. planning something fun and engaging where kids can, you know, whether it's academic or not, it, it's just giving them the opportunity to have relationships with each other that are good and positive and fun. Yeah. Just those shared positive experiences are huge mm -hmm. for building that community piece. And like you said, they don't have to be earned, right? You can I mean like, why not have a pajama day? Even if the kids didn't earn so many stickers or points or whatever, mm -hmm. um, 
I think that kids too also love opportunities to like, if you are, if you have rewards in your classroom or something, a reward that they could have is that they get to bring a friend to go do something special with them, whether it's doing art in the classroom or at recess or playing a game with a teacher, like just building in opportunities for kids to get to share in those positive things, those fun things with a classmate um, can really go a long way too. I love it. So you mentioned that teachers need to seek out supportive coach if they are really like, okay, I've got to make some changes. I need to figure out what this can look like. Um, what can a coach do? Like, what are your recommendations for a coach who is trying to support teachers and revamping their approach when the classroom is not supportive of students? Mm-hmm. Like, what can their discussions be about? How can they help planning for change? What can they look for in their observations that you mentioned? What could that look like? Yeah, this can definitely be tricky. Um, and in my experience, I think sometimes what happens is our default as teachers is to recreate the classroom environment in which we were the most successful, which may or may not be what's actually supportive of our students. So I think the first thing to do, you know, there's going to be some mindset shifts that need to happen in in this work, but, um, to have a conversation about goals and vision, but also to dig into data as soon as possible. So, um, going in to observe and take notes, like with the teacher knowing exactly what I'm looking for, um, and then presenting really anecdotal data of like what students are saying to each other, what the teachers are saying, how many times students were engaging in particular behaviors, and so on. And like that can become a really organic process where we're dissecting the data, we're noticing trends, and that can kind of help with that aha moment for the teacher to realize that a change is needed. Like, oh, I didn't realize that I. Um, said this many redirections within five minutes or something like something needs to change. Um, And that can be, like I said, the teacher realizing something they didn't know they were doing, um, or it can be like students are doing things that you didn't realize they were doing too. Because when you're teaching, you don't, you don't notice those things. You're trying to get through your lesson. Sometimes if the classroom isn't really supportive of students, you're putting out fires, like you're busy. So having someone else who can see those things can be really helpful. Um, But also if, the teacher is, you know, uncomfortable about having you observe. They can also um, record themselves teaching and just watch that video themselves. If they're not ready for the coach to be a part of that process yet, you know, you can provide them with some guiding questions, with some prompts for them to then watch the video and um, reflect on their own. And then you can have a conversation afterwards about what they've noticed. And I think then there's the mindset shifts that hopefully can come from that data um, to be able to say, like, okay, well, yeah, this is the way I've always done it or the way I was taught to do it or so how it was done when I was a student to then say, you know, maybe there's another way we can approach this. And as the coach, then here's some reading we can do together or some professional learning we can engage in side by side to learn more, to shift those mindsets and set some realistic goals. But yeah, I think as a coach, I mean, this is definitely like a, a collaborative process. It's never like, there's an issue, here's some learning, here's the data, fix it, good luck, like, which I don't think any of us would do. But we, as a coach, we can then support those goals through modeling or co-teaching or co-planning. And then another great way is to set up a peer observation. So having that teacher go watch a colleague, whether alone or with you, you can cover their class so they can go watch and you can um, kind of debrief afterwards. But just building in those opportunities for that um, that collaborative learning with the coach is really important. Yep, those are great recommendations. So if a coach wants to learn more from you, where can they find you online? Um, where can they, I mean, or are you out in the real world doing workshops? You know, how can they get a hold of you? 
Yeah. Yeah. I'm online right now. So you can find me at Instagram at Katie couples teaching, which Katie and couples are probably not spelled the way you think they are. So maybe <laughs> check the show notes from Chrissy. Um, and then you can also find me at my website with my blog, katiecouplesteaching.com. I've got resources on TPT, um, all about supporting family relationships, student relationships, all that kind of good stuff, as well as um, some workshops on Pop PD, which is an online platform for educators to um, be able to seek out and take trainings from other educators. So that's at poppd.co, and I have um, some work there too. So everywhere you'll find me at Katie Couples Teaching. <laughs> Great, that's awesome. Thank you so much for being here today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It was so fun to get to talk to you. I loved the details that Katie shared today and the ideas that she gave us for helping support teachers and building classroom community. I think a focus on that area and a focus on engagement and, and really being thoughtful about how we can support children as learners, not only as instruction, but also as, as self-management and, and behavior, you know, um, control of their over their own behavior and emotional learning and all of these things. If we can be thoughtful about that throughout our day, we can support kids in doing so much towards creating a, a pleasant community to be part of. If you are ready to learn some more, you can check out Katie, like she mentioned, that's Katie, C-A-I-T-I-E and couples, C-U-P-P-L-E-S is um, the way you spell Katie couples teaching. So you can check her out all over the place under that. You can also look at episode 28, Coaching for Equity with Elena Aguilar, because that is going to be related to uh, reaching our families and making sure that our kids are having the support that they need. Episode 79 is video coaching with Corey Camp. Katie mentioned that towards the end of the episode. And it's one of my favorite episodes because it's so meaty. And it's also so helpful to help teachers evaluate. They're not evaluate, look and observe and notice what's going on in their own teaching so that you can support them in making changes as well. Episode 121 is Advocating for Equity with Dr. Lindsay Wilson. I recommend you go back and check that one out as well. And episode 123 is Using Behavior Data to Guide Your Coaching Cycle. So we talked about collecting data. That's going to talk a little bit about some of the things you're going to look for when you're collecting that data and how you can use it to support coaching cycles focused on behavior. The next thing you can do is grab a free download, and it's all about classroom management for coaches. It includes the details on how to use a simple behavior plan when you're coaching in a classroom. So whenever I would go into classrooms, sometimes there was no discernible behavior plan and it really stressed me out and I didn't know what to do. So over time, I'm going to come out with an episode about this in a couple of weeks, but this is a short summary. Over time, I created this behavior plan that I could use with classrooms that didn't have anything in place and it was positive and it was supportive and it was focused and, and it gave kids language that they didn't have and teachers loved it. So I share that with you in a free download. You can go to buzzingwithmc.com slash episode 127 with a capital E on episode. Scroll down to the bottom of that post and you can enter your email address to grab that free download and start trying out the behavior approach with classrooms that maybe don't have anything in place. In episode 129, we're going to continue our focus on behavior and how you can support teachers in these tough times. We are going to have a coaching call with a coach and we're going to talk a little bit about how they can get into those classrooms, support teachers who have maybe been hesitant to try new approaches and really kind of get your foot in the door when it comes to management, even whenever teachers have not felt like maybe your coaching support is supposed to be in that area. So join me next week to learn how you can make this happen. And until then, happy coaching. Thank you for listening to Buzzing with Miss B, the coaching podcast. Want more coaching ideas? 
Check me out at buzzingwithmissb.com and on Instagram at buzzingwithmissb. If you love the show, share it with a coach who would love it too, or leave me a review on iTunes. It's free and it helps others find this show. Happy coaching. Happy coaching.